I'm Corby Comer from The Atlantic, and we are talking about personalized medicine. And whether it is or isn't a myth, I think that Zeke might have been able to persuade the people who wrote the title not even to have a question mark. <laughs> but this is an open question. So... Um, we have an extremely distinguished panelist of uh, doctors who have decided to just take their medical degree and act as if it didn't exist because they've launched it so far and are so distinguished in many realms. Um, I have to my right Ezekiel Emanuel, who needs no introduction to Aspen Goers, but you might not know he's chair of biomedical ethics, bioethics and medicine. Medical ethics and health policy. Medical ethics and health policy um, at UPenn, where he does whatever he wants in any possible school and is encouraging a lot of cross-school collaboration in innovative ways. We have Dr. Margaret Peggy Hamburg, commissioner of the Food and Drug Administration. And we have Dr. Eric Topol, a cardiologist who is at Scripps. We're going to start with Eric because he has an optimistic view um, of personalized medicine in, in terms of both devices and research. And I'm going to ask him to talk about both. Last year, did any of you hear him give his, as he calls it, Dr. Gizmodo presentation? Well, you can refresh their memories then because only a few heard this. But he's full of novel advices and ideas, and I hope that you'll summarize those. Well, thanks very much, Corey. It's great to be with you. And uh, I think with, every, with uh, the whole idea is uh, just the opposite of the way Zeke had titled this program. Okay? <laughs> Personalized medicine is, is, is uh, not a myth. It's a reality. It's getting its roots right now. And so what I want to do in this introductory part is give you a sense of why this is not only so exciting and transformative, but it is the most momentous moment in all of medicine. It's the biggest shakeup to occur in medical history, despite what you're going to hear from the Luddite to my left. Um, now Battle let, lines being drawn. Now, now let me just explain kind of where the pieces are. Actually, uh, a book, Creative Destruction of Medicine, goes in much more depth that came out in February this year that I put together. Of the tools that we have now, that we just have now, just getting going, we never had before, giving us the ability to digitize human beings. So you're used to digitizing books and newspapers, now human beings. That's a big step forward. Now, what does that represent? Well, sequencing a genome is a really big deal. Six uh, billion letters comprise our genome. To do it accurately, you need to sequence it at least 40 to 50 times. So we're talking about a lot of data just to get a genome sequence. We can do that now in hours. And remember, in just last week, it was the 12th anniversary, it took six years, $3 billion. Now we can do that in hours at a cost of less than $1,000. That's a remarkable jump forward. It trans any even concept of Moore's Law just in that span of 12 years. Now, how can that be applied? How can that information about our sequence be so uh, uh, much of a, a rebooting of medicine? Because now we have insights. So let's just go through four examples real quickly. Cancer is a genomic disease. It's a disease of the DNA going off the track. If one can sequence the tumor and sequence our native germline DNA and do a comparison, we can identify, and we have, the driver mutations that are the root cause of the cancer and then uh, actually apply therapy specific to the driver mutations. This has led to the FDA, I know um, Dr. Hamburg's going to talk about this, Peggy, but the more drugs have been approved over the last year than many, many years because of precision-guided, genomically-guided therapy. And it's not just in cancer, not just in malignant melanoma, where you can give a drug orally for two weeks that completely eradicates the tumor, and you can do this in other uh, examples, and now it may be not durable over many years, but these are people who otherwise had a, a death sentence, a fatal disease within a year. Now we can see their tumor completely regress in just a couple of weeks in over 80 85% malignant basal cell carcinoma, certain types of lung cancer. But it's beyond cancer. Cystic fibrosis gene discovery occurred in 1989, and it took till now, this year, with the historic uh, approval of a drug, uh, Calideco, which is targeting a specific mutation of cystic fibrosis, G551D, that is only in about 3 or 4% of, of kids with cystic fibrosis, but it has a remarkable impact. 
So it's, it's across uh, uh, various genetic diseases as well as cancer, a genomic disease. Now let's get into the other areas where genomics is having an a enormous impact, despite what you'll hear from Zeke. Um, <laughs> we don't know yet. Oh, yes, we do. Okay. Um, uh, the second one I want to just mention is these idiopathic, the fancy medical term for we don't know. Okay, that fancy medical term, cryptogenic, some kind of mystery, these are people who go to the court of last resort with million-dollar workups. They don't know what's wrong, and they have serious, oftentimes life-threatening diseases. And we have examples now of individuals whose lives were saved because they had sequencing, because then the mutation was defined, and they had a definitive therapy. In fact, in some cases, cured. The index case is a young boy from Milwaukee named Nicholas Volker, who was about to die, had 100 operations in the hospital, was in a hyperbaric chamber, and then he was saved. And he's a very healthy, completely healthy seven-year-old boy. There's many more examples like that. The third example is getting rid of the need for amniocentesis. We can now do a whole genome sequence of an unborn baby in the first trimester. Who would have thought that would be possible? And that can be done now. In fact, there's another paper in Nature, the, the most prestigious biomedical journal, coming out uh, this, uh, this next week, just on the same topic. So to be able to predict major illnesses, not just uh, trisomy 21 Down syndrome, but across the gamut of many other uh, important illnesses, in utero, in the first trimester, is a remarkable sign of progress. And the other one, just on genomics, we haven't even gotten into uh, mobile devices and, and other ways to digitize the human being. But just on genomics, pharmacogenomics, and that is the issue of matching up a drug with one's genome. Now, why is this so important? Well, up until recently, the drug Plavix was the, mo- was the most uh, uh, highest prescription sales in the world drug. Plavix is used for patients who have a stent. And there's over a million Americans who have a stent put in in their coronary heart arteries a year. 30-some percent of people have no ability to respond to Plavix. Yet they're given the prescription. There's no genotype that's checked, which could easily sort out the ones who will respond, won't respond, what dose they should get, should they get a different medicine. The FDA put on a warning label. But do doctors use that information generally? No. We do at Scripps. Vanderbilt uses it. A few other centers around the country. But that information, that great knowledge, isn't being used. And the same applies to drugs like Tegretol, very frequently used drug for diabetes, neuropathy, for epilepsy, for bipolar, depression. That drug, we know of a fatal side effect, potentially fatal side effect called Stevens-Johnson syndrome. It isn't on the FDA label. It is. Uh, the European, the European um, uh, allele. You have the Asian allele. The European allele has been defined, and that can be... I had a colleague whose wife almost died from the first dose of Tegretol, that, that carbamazepine. We have the European allele uh, identified, published in the New England Journal. It needs to be on the label. But the point is, no one in this country screens those of European ancestry when they're going to get their Tegretol, whereas in Taiwan, every single patient who gets a prescription can't get the drug prescription filled until they have a genotype. But but can I just say that you brought up in an interview I read on (laughs) theatlantic.com. Funny you should mention Just oddly enough, um, in a section I edit, the idea that uh, sure, it's great to have the warnings on the label. It's great to say this is incredibly useful information, but 90% of doctors indicate they are completely uncomfortable with genomic data. Yes, and that's why we need to get away from the medical priesthood. We need to end the era of paternalism and the doctor knows best, and we need to form a new partnership because the consumer public are going to be able to learn to read, just like the era of Gutenberg, They're going to have all this data on their smartphone, whether it's genomic interactions with drugs, as well as every sensor they need specifically for them to detect whether it's their blood pressure, heart rhythm, whether they're going to have an asthma attack, all the different things that can be done when you have sensors that are tracking minute-to-minute, remotely, continuously critical uh, data. So that's what is a big inflection point in medicine, Corey, the ability for one to have the power of one's own data, individualized personalized medicine that is going to be the future. It's just a matter of when. Um, okay. I, I have one more, one more real-life example I wanted you to give before we turn to Zeke, which was the use of statins. I thought you were going to bring that up. Oh, I'd be happy to. So statins 
are one of the most important successful drug classes. But the problem with statins is that those who take it for primary prevention, I'm not talking about people who've already had a heart attack or they've already had uh, uh, any kind of heart or stroke disease. These are people who are just taking it because their LDL bad cholesterol and their lab test is abnormal. Mm-hmm. And so in those people, statins only help about two to three per hundred people. And we're talking about over 20 million Americans take a statin every day. The problem is one in every hundred get diabetes induced by the statin. And that was a subject of a New York Times op-ed earlier this year. And we that don't, you wrote. That I wrote. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and, and, and I only thought you read The Atlantic. Sorry. No. So the, 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 uh, the, the point here is that we do not, you know, if, why don't we give this information to the consumer and say, do you want to take a statin? Because, you know, you, you should know this risk. The diabetes warning to patients is not given because there's, the medical community is transfixed about the getting the LDL lowered and not acknowledging the, the, the hazard. Thank you. Zeke? Well, my father always taught me that uh, um, offense was the best defense, so I guess Eric got that lesson. <laughs> <laughs> but let, let, let me, uh, so I have three points to make. The first is that uh, uh, personalized medicine is just full of hyperbole, and you've heard some of it, but I'll, I'll talk about it a little bit. I, I haven't heard any yet. I haven't. Second, this idea that it's going to be cost savings is almost assuredly bunk. And the third is that it really is uh, a myth when it comes to the question, which I take it to be the big question, of how do we improve the health of the American population. So let's just uh, take each one of those points first. Um, hyperbole. So if I were to say to you, Personalized medicine, what would come to your mind? Well, I take it that the word personalized means it has to deal with me. So a common definition out there, and I have my notes so I don't misquote, is tailoring of medical treatments to the individual characteristic of each patient. Right? Individual characteristics, each patient. So the idea is that medicine is for me alone. Not Peggy, not Eric, not Corby, me alone. It's a good idea. So it, the idea is that there's an N equal one, that every time you use it, it's, about, it's tailored towards me. Um, the fact is that in most cases, it's not about me individually. It's about people as a group. And what we've seen in the progress of personalized medicine and what we're likely to see in the progress of personalized medicine uh, is that we're putting people into finer groups, but they're still in groups. Um, and that is a very different notion than it's going to be designed for me individually. Um, as a matter of fact, the PCAST, the Presidential Council Ad- Advisory Council on Science and Technology, some, some title like that, uh, put out a report uh, on personalized medicine where it said, well, personalized medicine does not literally mean creation of drugs that are unique to each individual patient. It's just classifying individuals into subpopulations. Right? Well, that's sort of giving a label and then taking it back immediately. And that's a little bit of, uh, I would say, false advertising. Have we been doing this personalized medicine of classifying people into individual groups ever before? Or is it brand new with the genome? The fact is, we've been doing it since time immemorial, since medicine has gotten started, and certainly extensively in the last 150 years. Take my field, which is breast cancer. Right? Originally, we had Breast cancer was just one cancer. And then uh, people noted that uh, you had lymph nodes, and we could classify people by whether they had a lot or a little, and that gave us information about whether they were going to do well or not. And then they put it under the microscope, and they could classify it uh, further by different characteristics, and then, again, separate people into some who would respond and some who wouldn't. And then we went further. We did some molecular tests. And some have estrogen receptive positive, some have estrogen receptive negative, and we dif- differentiated treatment there. Some got treated with hormones when they were estrogen receptor positive, some didn't get treated with hormones because it wouldn't work when they were estrogen receptor negative, and we've been able to further subdivide them over time. Is this personalized medicine? Have we therefore been practicing personalized medicine for 150 years or 1,000 years? Well, it's really dividing people into subgroups over and over again. We have, as I say, been doing that. Now we'll add to the microscope, to molecular tests uh, for different receptors. We'll add the genome component. We're still going to get a bulk of people. You heard 
uh, from Eric, you know, look at this great example of, uh, of uh, uh, cystic fibrosis, we were able to identify 2.6% of the population in one group. We were not identifying individual patients. It was still a group, finer and finer groups, but still nonetheless a group. It is going to be that groupness uh, forever. Uh, and I think that we should not get rid of. This doesn't make it new, right? It doesn't make it radical. And it certainly doesn't make it personalized in the sense of individual for each individual patient, the n equal 1. That's why I claim it's hyperbolic. The second is, is it going to be cost savings? Now, let's back up for a second. You're a drug company. You're selling your statins to 20 million people or whatever. And you find out that 30% aren't going to respond because of this new genetic test. So you're going to sell your drug instead of to 20 million people you can sell it only to 14 million people. What's the consequence? You're going to jack up the price because you've got to make the same amount. So net-net, we're not going to save money. Eric and his colleagues would say, oh, but you'll have fewer people where it doesn't work and fewer side effects in those people, and you'll be able to save money by reducing the side effects. Let's see the data first that that, in fact, happens and that the side effects are costing enough money uh, Second of all, if you're going to get that genetic test to differentiate the people, that's not a free test. By the way, the genetic test that we use now in, again, my field, which is what I know best, in the breast cancer field, there is a genetic test that's supposed to differentiate women into high recurrence risk, intermediate recurrence risk, and low risk. And if you're low risk, you get one treatment. And if you're high and intermediate, you get another. That test, $4,000. So you have to have a very big savings to justify that 4000 on all the women who have breast cancer, right? You're not just going to do a subpopulation. You're doing all of them. But if you test so, it... Wait, 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 wait. I'm not finished. <laughs> <laughs> so the idea that we're uh, cost savings here uh, by doing a genetic test and then differentiating treatments for people. Eric and his colleagues will say, well... There are going to be cases, and there will be cases, where we are literally going to individuate our treatment. You heard him talk about, you know, we know that cancer is a genetic disease. We're going to go in and sequence the gene of that cancer, and we're going to then target a specific treatment to those genes, maybe by creating immune response to that specific type of tumor that the person has. That's really individually tailored that really would be personalized medicine, tailored to my specific case. Now, anyone in this room think that's going to be cheap? Anyone? Anyone think? <laughs> when was the last time you went to the uh, tailor and you either bought a suit off the rack and had it adjusted or you got a bespoke suit and the bespoke suit was cheaper? Anyone know that experience? <laughs> I doubt it. When you're going to have high-priced labor, doctors, scientists, lab techs, do, creating something individually for you, it's almost invariably going to be more expensive. I just put out to you, we've had, uh, I would say, 50 years of pretty intensive medical advances. Uh, and the conclusion, by most economic analyses of these intensive and medical advances and technology, is not that they save money, but that there's 50% of the cost, of the real growth in healthcare costs. Technology, hitherto, has not been a big cost saver. I'm not going to say it won't be in the future, but if you're going to design something individually for each patient, um, I want to know the industry where that has actually reduced costs. Let me end with the myth part. So um, I, I uh, uh, want to just ask you the following question. You have let's call it $100 billion, $1 trillion, whatever the number is you want to pick to invest for healthcare improvement in this country. Do you invest it in personalized medicine or not? Well, I could give you a range of things that you could, uh, otherwise things you could invest in. You could invest in personalized medicine a la, a la Eric. You could invest in more uh, hospitals and cancer treatment facilities and whatever. Uh, you could invest it in prevention um, you could invest it in you know, whatever you want. 
Going forward, if we want to make an impact on healthcare, we need to understand that there are four main causes of disease. The environment, I mean not the environment, behavior, by which I mean diet, smoking, and exercise, accounts for 50%, between 40 and 60% of diseases. Genetics, south of 30%. Social factors, south 15%. Uh, the environment, 5%. Now, if you really want to improve health of the population, where do you put your next nickel? Is it into that genetic bucket and personalized medicine? Or is it into the behaviors uh, and reducing obesity in this country, reducing or improving exercise, and reducing smoking? It is, if you take that perspective, a slam dunk <coughs> that it's not personalized medicine. <laughs> That's all I have to say. Okay, so I get, congratulations. I get um, a couple of follow-ups before we, we uh, before we um, unleash poor Peggy. Um, <laughs> which is, uh, you act as if technology, which always increases costs, you act as if it's a bad thing. But a lot of the advances you're talking about, clearly you think are good things in your own field. They oh, were a lot in technology. So you're not a complete Luddite, and you don't say, let's not use technology, right? No, I did, did I say, did I ever once say we shouldn't advance technology? You implied no, it. I just no, want to uh, clarify that you, you, you don't You can't get me on record to say we should not invest in technology, we shouldn't advance technology. I worked for 15 years at the National Institutes of Health. Uh, but I think we should do it clear-eyed about the implications. The implications are not hitherto, for the last 50 years, been tremendously cost savings. I'm not saying they can't, but I would be, I think history is on my side, and anyone who comes up and sells you a, tells you they've got new technology that's going to reduce costs, you have to be extremely skeptical and say, prove it. Do not trust that snake oil salesman, because that's what it has been up until now. It really has. Okay, Eric. Um are you asking him a question now? No, I'm not asking him a question. Um, I guess we'll go to Peggy, but there's, 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 there's definitions that have really, um, I think you may not be as far as apart as you think, well, of course, you're very far apart, but you might not be quite as far apart as you think you are because you're using personalized medicine differently. Yeah. Um, and... We all think, I think, when we came into this panel, it means how can I go get my genome tested and get a better and be healthier and have my, when I get cancer, God forbid, but I will, get it cured. So you're saying that's a long, long way in the future. It's enormously expensive. It's the bespoke suit. Um, it's defining it subgroups. But that's something you would say, right? And in, in your statin example and such, that was still defining small subgroups, you just find out whether you're in that subgroup or not. Not exactly. Uh, but I, I, I think maybe it'd be good you know, to get uh, Peggy's views, and then I can amplify. Fine. So there's lots of things that, that hinge on. First, I'm interested in your personal opinion, but you don't have to give it. Um, and second, there are a lot of things that have implications for the FDA. Um, certainly the devices, and Eric didn't do his any of the gizmo demos, which he does really persuasively wow. and wonderfully. Just show us your two fingers on your screen, why don't you, as we, as we go have into talking about the FDA. Done. All right, so we'll do, if, if Peggy's willing, we'll do her cardiogram for you. Uh, this is uh, just a, a little uh, sensors on the back and a, um, to do the cardiogram, and then if you could just put a finger on each sensor like that. And one remember, we hand. observe, yeah, like we observe HIPAA here. Don't like, expose the screen to the audience. She can volunteer Just it. hold it like this. We have it, but one oh, second. There's no HIPAA. We'll start it again. Um, so just hold it. The question is, if that's it's patient the privacy. And not yet. Very careful. Not yet. Okay. Yeah. Is that, so just, fingers on one hand? One, yeah. Just hold it. Hold the whole thing. You've got a pulse in your hand. It's not that big a... Yeah, let's see. So you're able to see um, a line that looks like a live EKG, right? You just on, hold it. on your eye. Hold it steady now. Okay, no snapshots, please. <laughs> this is private data. So, it doesn't look okay, like it will be. Uh, uh, EKG I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> if you just hold it steady. But my pulse has gone way up. <laughs> 
It's actually a very good cardiogram right now, Lee, too, but you have a very rapid pulse. I, I don't see. normally. <laughs> I don't normally. 113. That's what happens when you sit between Eric oh and me. That's being, that's being violated in this room. So some of these devices would have to be of interest to you as well as the uses of the drugs yeah, that well, Eric You're raising about. so many different issues that you know, maybe I can start sure. by just um, you know, speaking a little bit to the, the actual issue on the table for this session. Um, and I was told not to prepare anything but to respond to my colleagues. Um, but, I mean, I, I think I agree with you that, that, you know, we're sort of having an apples and oranges discussion here. And, you know, as I think about these issues, you know, we're really talking about advancing science so that we can better treat individual patients and populations to improve health care and public health. And that Zeke is right, that we've been doing, striving towards personalized medicine in in doctor's offices, you know, for a very long time. Trying, doctors try to give an individual patient the best possible care that they can. And from a policy point of view, we're thinking about, you know, populations of patients. And as, you know, products have been developed, they have been focused, you know, on really categories of disease and how to reduce burden of disease. But I think that these, these things you know, come together, and we are really at a very exciting time in terms of advances in science and technology that are really enabling us to much more deeply understand the underlying mechanisms of disease. And whether those mechanisms are um, genetically based to a very large degree or whether they're mainly environmentally or behaviorally determined, what comes out as the patient or individual experience and disease condition or health status is a reflection of these different factors coming together, impinging on each other, et cetera. So the more we can understand, the, the more effectively we can not just treat disease, but also hopefully cure and prevent disease. And I think that, you know, to me, you know, where we're going, and sometimes it's called personalized medicine, others are now calling it precision medicine, is really a move towards trying to, to really have data-driven drug development, when we're talking about in relation to medical products, and, and data-driven decision-making in a physician's office or on a broader basis, health policy. And I do think it matters. Um, we've touched on a couple of the areas that, as FDA commissioner, I've certainly noted. And I would say that the FDA is a very unique agency, an essential agency of government in that we are a science-based, data-driven, regulatory agency with a mission to promote and protect the health of the public. And we sit in a place where we can, on the one hand, look out and see what are the unmet public health and medical care needs and what is in the development pipeline in terms of, of products that are being developed to address those needs. And hopefully we can serve as a bit of a catalyst to help make sure that there's alignment of those two important uh, sets of issues. And when I look at what is happening, and for the purposes of this discussion, I, I, I kind of thought we were talking about um, genomics mm -hmm. and personalized yep, medicine. But you can talk about personalized medicine in many ways, as, as Zeke has already pointed out. But, but when you talk about what do the advances in science and technology that have given us uh, the opportunity to map this, the uh, genome offer in terms of advances in, in treatment and care and and ultimately prevention as well, I think they're very real and they are growing as you look down the road. Things like um, deepening the understanding of how to use existing medicines more appropriately really matters. Um, you mentioned um, about uh, uh, the importance of labeling um, a, a drug thinning agent. In fact, if you look at emergency room visits for the elderly, um, a leading cause is complications of drug thinning medication, which is used not just for stents, um, used um, uh, for people that have um, uh, deep vein thrombosis, people that have heart attacks, people that have, have strokes. Um, and it's very, very common. And, it's, and uh, particularly um, for the drug uh, warfarin, it's, it's very hard to dose it. And so by, by knowing about the underlying genetic status of an individual, 
we now have the tools to be able to tell doctors um, that, that under this condition with this genetic predisposition or trait, this is how you should think about dosing your patient. And it makes a huge difference and it does reduce the complications of drug thinning medications. There's the problem of how do you translate this knowledge into to practice, and that's a bigger one for medicine in general. A lot of what we know works isn't reflected in the medical care that people get. Um, that's an issue of, of better um, education of, of physicians and healthcare providers and also the public and a greater empowerment of the public with good information. But so in the area of labeling, we now have over 70 drugs that have labels that link a genetic trait or biomarker with the appropriate use of a medicine. And, and it really does matter. We know that there are patients who experience um, unacceptable, serious, adverse consequences. You mentioned the, the serious skin disease, which is like, can be like a full body burn, often fatal, associated with uh, carbamazepine. There are many other examples as well. So, so that is an example of personalized medicine that is making a difference, can make more of a difference, but without a doubt is a reflection of advances in knowledge and science. Um, the other area that's so important is the, be, the ability to identify subpopulations of patients with respect to the appropriateness of a therapy for, for treatment. And you know what we know is that we now have a number of treatments, and I think there'll be more, where there's a diagnostic and a treatment that have been shown to be uh, safe and effective and make a difference uh, for those patients. And we've seen breakthrough drugs in the last year, such as, I say, Kaleidico, but um, the drug for cystic fibrosis. Um, and, you know, there are kids now coming off the, the list for lung transplants with cystic fibrosis. Um, because they're taking this drug. It's a small proportion of an already limited disease in terms of, of size, but you know, it's, it's kids who are desperately ill that now are not. But more importantly, this is the first drug that really targets the underlying mechanism of the disease and not just the symptoms. So it's really it's the application of better science to the problem of medical care that I think is the huge advance, and it happens to be linked, that better science is that we now know that if you have a certain genetic marker, you're going to respond to this um, drug. And that one of the things that hasn't been mentioned, I'm repeating some of what you've already heard, but one of the things that hasn't been mentioned is that how we develop drugs will be affected by this, and it may save money, it may save time, and it will certainly make for safer, better drugs. If we had not known that there was a subpopulation of, of um, individuals with cystic fibrosis that had this marker that, that told us something important about the mechanism of disease and a target for drug development that could alter the course of that disease, we might have studied this same drug right, right. and not known that it made a difference because the effect would have been totally wiped out. You would have had a heterogeneous population, people with the trait and without, more people without the trait, and it would have looked like the drug was completely ineffective. And so the more we know about these subpopulations of responders or subpopulations of people that experience unacceptable side effects, the more we can tailor therapies in ways that really matter. It may well save costs in terms of drug development, and that matters if you're looking at the big picture. These drugs are, are expensive, as Zeke said, but we do want to look not just at this moment in time, but we want to look forward and look at the big picture. If we can save costs in drug development, if we can also um, not treat people with drugs that don't work and not cause side effects that we don't need to cause, you know, I think that is you know, a net benefit for individuals and for society. The one other thing I want to mention is that we need to apply better information technology uh, to the work that we're doing. And certainly, as we dig down and understand the human genome um, better and the, the, um, the genetics of, of cancer and, and other diseases as well, um, we can do that because of advances in technology that have made it possible. 
Um, but we also need to apply scientific computing to existing databases and future databases so that we can collect information in new ways that give us better answers. We can go back, for example, and look at studies that have already been done. We sit on a lot of data at the FDA um, from studies that have worked and studies that haven't worked because companies have submitted applications to us. And if we learn more about a genetic marker or a biological marker that may tell us something about subpopulations of responders, we can go back potentially and analyze the data and, and learn that a drug that we thought didn't work in fact does work or learn that a drug that might be about to be pulled from the market because of, of side effects actually doesn't produce those side effects but produces a meaningful improvement in health in a subset of responders. And certainly with electronic health records going forward, we have an opportunity to collect information in new and important ways to dig down deeper. But to me, it's really about using available science and technology and continuing to advance that science to better understand the nature of disease, the mechanisms of disease, targets for drug development, and ways that we can provide the best possible treatments to patients. Thank you very much. Um, Let me ask one follow-up, which is, I never thought I'd be asking this of anyone from the FDA, but when you talk about the labeling warnings based on genetic markers, Mm -hmm. is there some chance that you're getting ahead of medicine? You know, all we ever hear about is the endless, endless delays for drug approval and how, you know, behind the FDA. Well, we're slightly ahead of medical practice often because it's not being used, but, but hopefully our labels will inform medical practice. But as you just heard, we're usually accused of being behind the science. Um, He was pointing out we do have a label, a a box warning label that tells um, practitioners that um, for this drug, Tegretol or carbamazepine, that there's a certain um, genetic marker and that individuals that have that marker are are at increased risk for these, um, you know, really quite devastating uh, side effects. We note that it's more common in people of Asian origin. Um, the science clearly shows that. What he's pointing out is that, in fact, the science has progressed a bit, and we've, we've broken down the alleles, so there's a European variant exactly. and an Asian variant, and I, I guess perhaps our label only speaks to the Asian variant. Um, so but, we're... Well, we, you know, you're, they're, they're a little behind on that, but way ahead on the Plavix side, you know, compared to medical practice. And I agree, Peggy, that this is a science-driven story, and that's what's so exciting here. And as opposed to what Zeke has been trying to say is that this is kind of worthless. Uh, by the way, I don't know how you can argue that personalized medicine is a myth and then start out with that personalized medicine has been going on for 150 years. I think that's a little bit of a contradiction. It's not a I contradiction it. in the following way. If you mean personalized medicine, <laughs> yeah. okay. but, tailored yeah. to the individual, that's what the word personal means, then I that's claim, why people are that I claim it's a myth. Okay. I, and I think it's mainly been... A salesman job. Okay, if you claim, wait a second, if you, what you're claiming is it's not really about an individual person, but we're going to be able to more finely categorize you based upon your genetics, that is just an extension of what we've been doing. The latter, you wouldn't call personalized medicine. You would just call you know, finding subgroups that things work better in. But it doesn't sell that way, and so we call it personalized, and we've oversold it. That's, what I'm, that's why I but, say but it's Zeke, hyperbolic. Would you agree as a physician that when a breast cancer... I agree cancer, as a person. Okay, as a person. Uh, that, but hopefully not all people are having breast cancer patients coming into their offices asking for treatment advice. But you described the progression of understanding the nature of the disease and fine-tuning treatments based on that patient's presentation. But it's based um, upon putting them into subcategories. But look, yeah, look, it's all data and averages, et cetera. But no, but no. this is—I don't think this is well, a you, useful wait, discussion. I do think that. First of all, you one of the reasons we're having a shift. Let, let me make two points. One of the reasons we're having a shift from the word personalized to precision is precisely the fact that personalized has oversold what you've got. The second thing I would say is if you don't have differentiated treatments, we might have been able to differentiate estrogen receptor positive from estrogen receptor negative. If we didn't have a treatment that was better for that, that differentiation would be meaningless. And this is the case of dozens of genetic markers, right? Right. But, But we're in an era where we can do a whole genome sequence. And that is 
Every individual has a unique sequence. And that but unless is, you have treatments that attack the individual's okay. combination, you, you it know, won't mean for, anything. For you to make an analogy that it's like going out to buy a suit for the most precious thing of our existence, our health, that doesn't fly. I'm sorry. Now, what I'm trying to say is we about... We needn't get into that. I mean, it was the idea of something very expensive uh, right. that's individually Tailored to an individual. Made for you. Okay, fine. But what I'm trying to say is we have now the new tool that didn't exist before to define biologically each individual. And that is the concept here that we're talking about. Now, $300 billion plus dollars a year are spent for drugs, prescription drugs in this country. We know at least $100 billion of that is waste largely because we're mismatching the drug to the individual. But now we have the data which we can drive. Like for example, the three top drugs right now in 2012 are Umira, Remicade, and Enbrel, all directed towards rheumatoid arthritis and psoriasis. $9 billion each a year, total $27, $28 billion just in one drug class. We know only 40% of people respond to those drugs. Why don't we do the genomics uh, science to find out who are the responders and not responders and develop the drugs for the non-responders? Uh, absolutely. Great idea. And what's going to be the price to the responders? It's not going to stay at the same level. It's going to go up to that magic number, $9 billion. That's, that's, that's a cynical way, though. Before, we're about to go to questions, but before we do, there's something that, that hasn't come up, and you as the defender of this have to bring this up, which is the whole snake oil question. Which is, you're, you're using, I, I would maintain, a fairly similar definition. You're just arguing about the implications of it. Defining people into subgroups, finding the most appropriate treatment for them. I think many people interpret personalized medicine, and I think that some charlatans, especially in Europe, are <laughs> selling the idea that if you go in and you get your genome tested and sequenced, in fact, individual drugs and treatments and vaccines that will help you overcome your cancer, I know about that, um, that cost that only multimillionaires can do for themselves. That's the kind of personalized medicine that I would hope you would say would be giving the name, uh, giving it a bad name. Yeah, I, I've never liked the term personalized. I've always thought individualized, and now more recently precision is the right term. A personalized to me sounds like a concierge. You know, we don't need a concierge. What we do need is... There is, of course, a whole category of concierge doctors. Yeah, exactly. That's what I think about when I think of that term. But what, what we do need is for the consumer, would-be patient or actual patient, to have the information they never had before. And that's what's so different now. You can get, and that, by the way, it doesn't cost three or $400 to do a single base genotype. It costs pennies. Any hospital, any CLIA, which is a validated facility, could rev up and do genotypes for pennies, a dollar. It doesn't have to be so expensive, and this whole trying to debunk the expense part. But it can be highly uh, individualized so that we can, in fact, match up drugs, which is the most common issue today, uh, and, and a big waste of our uh, healthcare budget, we can match up and we should be pushing more. So back, back to Peggy's point, not only the drugs that are developing to getting registered, but what about the drugs that are in common use today that have never been studied genomically? It's, it's very likely these studies are, are, are have a high yield of either major side effects or of efficacy. And they're okay. highly let, actionable. Let me give a concrete example. I was going to ask you to respond. Yeah, I, I, sure I you want were. to respond to the charlatans <laughs> So, too. so let, let, let me give you a concrete example uh, of where if you don't have a therapy, you can have all the information about differentiating people where it's not going to be very helpful. Uh, we have a, a test that we can do for Alzheimer's. It's not a perfect test. It's called APOE, and that people with uh, uh, a variant are at high risk for getting Alzheimer's, and people with a low, uh, another variant are at lower risk for getting Alzheimer's. And uh, there's at least one drug out there in an advanced trial um, uh, and one, there is a suggestion. Um, the question is, if you don't have an effective treatment at Alzheimer's, you can have all the information about the genetic technology, your genetic predisposition, and it won't make any difference. So you need both the genetics and differentiated treatments that actually work. You need that combination. But actually, Not, wait, wait. yeah. Well, I was just going to say, it does help to have more of this information even before you have a treatment to help you develop a treatment. And I think that really matters. One of the challenges with Alzheimer's disease is even knowing who, who actually has Alzheimer's disease, if you want to study whether something is making a difference in the progression or development of Alzheimer's disease, 
So I think, you know, it, for me, it really all comes back to taking whatever information we can get from wherever we can that helps us better understand the underlying mechanism of disease, the natural history of the disease, how to, how to define individuals who fit into a category with the disease, and how to hopefully develop something that will make a difference. Look, Peggy, that is just saying, look, we'd all like to have advancement of science. Absolutely agreed. Everything in here is in your word, hopefully, right? It's all about hopefully. And all I'm saying is uh, several things. First, I'm a little skeptical that we're going to get it down to the individual. And if it's not about the individualized, then let's get rid of the word personal. And second, I also don't think we're going to have a whole lot of cost savings here. And I believe that history is on my side. Until you prove with the combination of genetic tests, drugs, and reduction of side effects, you're going to save money. I think it behooves anyone who's responsible in this country to be skeptical about that. But do you, think, do you think that unless we can demonstrate something will save money, we should not the, advance again, science I, I and could, I could give you a laundry list of quotes from people who are advocating personalized medicine that it's, gonna, it's the way to save money. I don't know. Well, I, I didn't come up with this out of cold cloth. You can just go down the list okay. of all the advocates. So we can be optimistic that it will save money. So um, we can just be optimistic. We can be delusional, too. Yeah, right. All right, let's all let's be in a group delusion. And besides, you use the word in here, which has completely made my Aspen Ideas Festival. Um, we have lots. We have a mic. And are we really going to ask people to come up to it? Okay, they would like to be able to record this fully. At first, I thought nobody would, would be able to have the energy to get out of their seats, but I don't feel that now. I, I got a feeling they're coming So I think it's going to be a race to the top. <laughs> it's, good. it's good. Okay. Oh, and she beat you. Okay. Do, make sure you ask a question. I'm a little confused why these two points of view are so adversarial, because the, the, way that, um, the way that I view what Zeke said is that so much of what happens in medicine could be avoided if we changed our behaviors. And we all know that smoking can cause cancer and being overweight and not exercising can lead to cardiovascular disease. But if an individual knew their own genome and knew that they had a higher probability, maybe they could make better decisions and change their lifestyles. And if we... If, if we could do that at an early enough age where kids think that they're immortal and all the things that they do have no consequences, maybe we could make a difference in healthcare. I guess right. I, I'm, a, I'm a little skeptical about that uh, translation of pe- give people more information, they'll do the rational thing, and they'll be hel- healthier. It does not seem to me, just if you, let's just take the, the most obvious example, again, the last 40 years in smoking, that it was the more information that converted people to stop smoking. It seems to me everything we know was the following. Raise the price. Make it socially unacceptable. Get it out of the offices, even out of the front steps. Uh, um, Get rid of advertising. um, Prevent kids from buying it. It was not, we're going to give you the information that the guy in the white coat said. So I would be very skeptical that more information is going to lead to better uh, outcomes. This hype, this emphasis that I know Aspen really likes, which is, it's just the information, folks, I think is we need to be very skeptical about it. There's probably nothing slower about moving things than changing behavior, and it's not because people are stupid but, or lack the information. Can you know, follow up? What about the person who has a heart attack and then changes their lifestyle? Once it affects you or has the potential... And, and once you have the data, I totally agree with you, by the way. Once you have your information, that can drive the right way. Let, let, let me just say, it, yeah. we haven't seen that in a lot of cases where you give people their genetic information and they suddenly change their behavior. Okay, but I, I certainly take all of her points about life-changing illnesses or events change behavior. The, the genome doesn't appear to be the only question because you have chemicals which affect turning genes on and off, number one, and you have epigenetics. I mean, Mm -hmm. we're not only our own genes, but the genes of all the bacteria. So just knowing your genome doesn't necessarily mean or comment on that, on those two factors. Yeah, I don't want to... We we talked about DNA sequence. That's just one omic, right? And you're already bringing up the gut microbiome, the rest of the microbiome, metabolites, the epigenome, side chains, uh, uh, of how the genome, DNA is packaged. All these things are under pursuit. We've had a lot of, actually, breakthrough science in the microbiome just in the recent weeks. So it isn't just a DNA sequence. But omics in general 
is what the thesis is, can really drive the future of medicine in a whole different way and get the engagement of the individuals, which is what I also think of individualized medicine, engagement of individuals with their knowledge now, their information which can be transformed knowledge about various omics, not just their DNA sequence. And I think it's also really important to understand that there's, there are very rare instances where there's a one-to-one -one correspondence between a certain genetic trait um, and, you know, 100% guarantee of development of a well, disease. Identical twins being not identical. That's so right. you have other facts. That's right. Right. Them. So that, you know, it's a very That's complex right. environment. Um, and, you know, we need to recognize that, that there are all these factors that impinge. And, and Zeke began with a nice recitation of what all those factors are. But I think that the more we can bring our understanding of those things together, the more important it is. But I think, you know, I do agree that we don't want to oversell what... It, you know, whole genome sequencing is really going to mean in terms of Listen, of I'm worried. I'm, all hearing, the I'm hearing agreement here. That's, that's already going to be a problem. Um, <laughs> we can solve that problem. Okay. <laughs> Zeke, I'd like to challenge you on one of the issues, that being cost, uh, with a concrete example in your field. I'm a uh, medical oncologist, and I am the CEO of a startup biotech company. We have a monoclonal antibody for breast cancer, triple negative breast cancer, which targets the breast cancer stem cells. We have a marker, we have a companion diagnostic, and we know that it's present in about 70%. So as this drug is developed, it'll only be used for 70% of the women with triple negative breast cancer, because those are the only ones who have the marker. How could you possibly say that it's more cost, I mean, that it would be the same if all women got this, than if only 70% got a monoclonal antibody, which we all know is one of the most expensive drugs imaginable. How much are you going to charge for this drug? That'll be up to whoever oh. buys the company. Let, but the let, fact let remains. Say, let me just say the following. Right? You're going to charge for the diagnostic. You're then going to charge for the drug. So the diagnostic goes to 100% of the women. 70% will get the drug. Okay, and I would suggest that because you're going to give it to fewer, the price is going to go up. But, you know, that totally misses the I, point. I think that oh, just to go along with your, your your line of thinking, the women with triple negative breast cancer who are refractory to treatments have all kinds of treatments that are that are ineffective and have a, a long course in the hospital and in every possible I, I, I con consumption of medical resources, that's what, if this is effective, I don't know if it is. Well, it, it, is. Isn't, it isn't just the reason the cost of the drug or the genotype, okay? It's about all the other horrible consequences that are uh, hotspotting the medical resources that we have today. And I said, I believe at the start, that you would have to show how much you're going to save from reduced side effects. Uh, Whatever cost the drug is, it's cheaper to give it to 70% than it is to give it to 100%. It doesn't matter what me, the cost excuse is. Excuse me. You could price the drug when you give it to 70% higher than you price it to 100%. Let's say you price it at 100 money. Let's say it's 100%. If you're only giving it to 70%, it's still less. Well, it's also okay. 70%. I, mean, I think we have an opportunity to, to <laughs> deepen our analysis of, of the cost issues, and I think you have to take a broad frame and look at it in terms of you know, the R&D costs as well as the, um, the uh, cost of treatment averted that was unnecessary and... Right. side effects right. and stuff that were averted and not just the cost of the drug. But I think it's also, it's a known fact that right now people are taking a lot of drugs that are not making a difference for them that cost a lot of money. And I'd rather put our healthcare resources into drugs that are safer and better and will really make a difference. Right. That's motherhood and apple pie, we agree. That doesn't say what the price of his drug is going to be, and it'll be higher if you're treating fewer people. It does seem that the two sides can be reconciled by reminding ourselves of the concept of the triple aim. And the part of the triple aim that's not been thought about enough is the patient experience. And we need to think, and this has been a wonderful expert interchange, but the patient's a little bit missing here. And um, if, if, the pa if we think deeply about the patient experience, it catches both. I mean, Dr. Emanuel's right. We've got to get those chronic disease. That's the behavioral part. Seventy percent of our health care costs are because of chronic disease. And if people are empowered to know about 
about their diseases and, and can address and manage their own health in, with the technical assistance, excuse me, of their physicians, then, um, you know, we'll be in better case. By the same token, Dr. Topol's um, needs could be met also by those very special patients who have special concerns having more information, and we're having that information ready. But, but that Don Berwick's Institute for Healthcare Improvement, triple aim, that is a really key concept to remember, and that part that has to do with patient experience is key. Couldn't Thanks agree on that more. point. I, I don't think anyone would argue that there's actual silence. So since this is the idea festival, I wanted to take an idea that I heard this week from an, in another context, and that is that there are a group of MIT uh, PhDs from the MIT uh, Media Lab, and they're taking raw data that, uh, in the context of the workplace, I, data that nobody had done anything with traditionally, and they analyzed it, applied algorithms to it, and created efficiencies that uh, saved companies uh, up to 25% per year. Uh, in one context, they were able to save $15 million for a particular company through very minute interventions like lengthening the tables at lunch or sending people to lunch at the same time or creating, having teams a dialogue within themselves. And it seems to me that there's room for, that as you were saying, there's a lot of data out there and that if we're able to look at it in a very clever way and set some brilliant minds on it, that we would be able to derive efficiencies that would affect our healthcare, affect cost, and affect the way people are experiencing uh, are, the patients are, experience, are, are having their experiences. You know, I, would, I, I agree with what you're saying, and I would have to say that when we're looking now at some of the recent approvals that reflect this more targeted approach, it is a dramatic shift in what it takes to an, approve a drug um, in terms of, of the amount of data and the time um, that it takes to collect the data and go through the FDA approval because it's, again, I have to come back. Z says it's motherhood and apple pie, but it's the goal, I think, of what we're trying to accomplish because the, the product is based on a deeper understanding of science. It is being targeted to the underlying mechanism of disease and targeted to the people that have, um, for various reasons, a predilection to either respond or, or not respond. And so we can we move very, very swiftly through the R&D process and the drug approval process. Kaleidico is an example. It was under six years, I think, That's from right. the discovery, which, you know, in the drug development world is half the time. Well, not only that, but just to think that the size of the trials, the length of time. So we're talking about, with Kaleidico, 200 patients Oh, oh, we're, oh, previously, we were talking about trials of thousands or tens of thousands of patients, but the recent approvals, and there have been many of them, uh, because of science-driven, genomically-guided therapies, have been with uh, drug development programs that are a tiny fraction of the cost, quicker, much less number of patients, because it's very precise. Well, I, I, I think that is undeniably a potential advantage here of uh, genetically-targeted uh, uh, treatment. But I think one should be a little more skeptical about having a shorter development phase leading to cheaper prices, leading to cost savings in healthcare. That is a very large gap, and I would just be very skeptical that that's the uh, path you're going to find. There are many other things that go into it. Don't forget, you're also going to layer on, which you hadn't layered on before, a genetic test before all of these. Uh, apply to a lot of people, and maybe if you apply it to 100 people and you only select 2%, that's a very big cost for a 2% difference. When we're talking about overall costs of the system, we need to be a little more skeptical than we have been up here. I would also say to that person, I absolutely agree with you. There is tons of data in the healthcare system. We have, whatever, a billion visits, I think, to the uh, uh, doctors and hospitals over the course of a year. Tons of data contained in there, and we certainly need to mine it, and there's no doubt there will be huge efficiencies. We'll, under, we'll be able to do a lot of predictive testing about who to intervene on. That is far, far from the personalized medicine Eric Topol was talking about. <laughs> well, that is all about, you know, you know what, all what, about what, changing the healthcare delivery system yeah. with the existing technologies to improve cost and, uh, to improve quality and reduce well, quality. To, to, I'm all for that. You can find me saying that a thousand times. Okay. We're not talking about separate drug for each person. What we're talking about is having an array of options and a 
understanding what that person's Look, issues are. And I, I didn't get this quote of personalized medicine being tailoring medical treatments to the individual characteristics of each individual. I didn't make that up. That's right out of the personalized medicine advocates. I didn't well, make it up. I, I didn't say it, that's for sure. Yeah. But, but can I just, <laughs> Everyone's running away from just, that Can I just respond to that, uh, Corey, uh, one quick thing? Mm -hmm. The point is, if you embrace the medicine of today, the medicine of today is horrendously uh, imprecise, inefficient. inefficient. So we give statins as primary prevention to 20 million people, and only 2% of those people are ever going to have a heart attack prevented or a stroke prevented. Because we are so dumb. We don't have the genomic data. We don't have the science-driven uh, path. And if you, don't if you don't embrace a science-driven path, which is what we're talking about, that's basically settling for mass population medicine, which is not only unacceptable, but it's, it's consuming pivotal economic resources when we can't, we, we can't wait, afford wait, wait, this. Wait, wait, wait. Uh, Hold on. No one said that the title of this session was Science-Driven Medicine is a Myth. Well, but I, I really do think that we, we should just move beyond the definition of personalized medicine as medicine that is only being developed so that we can know this entire specific underlying genetic composition of any given individual and develop drugs for them. But it is talking about you know, precision medicine where we are using science to understand subpopulations and so that when an individual comes into a healthcare setting, seeking treatment for a given disease, we can know more about how to provide the safest and most effective medicine for them. And I'm about to try to get Zeke to agree to something, but before I even dare do that, I don't want to keep our questioner waiting. Okay. Um, firstly, I think you can avoid this semantic debate by simply adopting the, uh, the qualifier more personalized. But in, anyway, that wasn't why I said Precise Preciser. Yeah. Preciser. Yes. Um, so that, that discussion was a good lead-up to my question, which is about FDA approval times. I'm a venture capitalist, and uh, many of my colleagues uh, uh, have funds that invest in med medical ventures, and they are seeing their, uh, the times for uh, new products to be approved grow over the but past decade. But that isn't decade. true. That just simply uh, isn't true. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I, if you give me your card, I will send you data. There have been repeated studies, including uh -huh. one in the New England Journal of And then can, you, can, we, can we hear the end of the question and then, and then <laughs> refute just, it so yet much, more I'm sorry. Well, okay, and I, that, I'm, seek, I'm seeking your, your commentary on this. And the, um, the, the, uh, just to finish the thought, it is the case that investments uh, into medical funds are diminishing. And, uh, and that, uh, that new ventures, new startups are a major source of medical innovation in this country, and that is a bad thing. Now, what the causes are, we can, uh, it's, it's more subtle to, to disaggregate that. But, uh, and a friend of mine who is among them has said that uh, increasing FDA conservatism is a, a, one of the root causes of this. And so I would appreciate your response to that. And also, uh, and, and just to unpack that a little bit, part of the underlying belief is that this has to do with the fact that the FDA does not have a reward system for, um, for getting things. In other words, there's a societal benefit to drugs being approved uh, sooner, but, there, um, but there's no reward mechanism for the FDA to do that. And, uh, and there, but there is, people do get in trouble for having approved things that are bad, for, that wind up being bad. And as a result of the cover-your-ass kind of concern among uh, government bureaucrats, therefore there's a movement towards conservatism. So that's, yeah. that's the belief. I mean, this is a topic for a whole other discussion, but there are a couple of key points. One is that, in fact, the FDA um, approves uh, drugs more rapidly than any other regulatory authority in the world, um, and, and new products get to the American consumers faster than anywhere else in the world. It is certainly the case that um, we could go faster, and we have been working hard on improving both business processes uh, to make our systems um, more modern and um, streamlined. Um, but it's also true that advancing the science makes a huge difference. We just talked about how when uh, there is you know, really strong science and well-done studies and, and well-targeted products that we can approve in rapid time. The drugs that we've just been talking about, three months in the FDA for approval. Um, so, you know, it is not simply the FDA approval time. I think we have, and I've been talking a lot about this with my colleagues in the administration and my, my friends and colleagues in the private sector, we as a nation need to address your fundamental question of how can we 
really assure more rapid and reliable translation of opportunities in science into real-world products that people need and count on. And that is much more than just how long it takes for FDA to review a product. It is a complex ecosystem, and we need to look at all the components and make sure that we're doing as well as we can in all of them, starting with issues of intellectual property and patents, issues of economic policies, access to capital, um, uh, tax credits and other incentives, looking at how are we investing in science and are we adequately investing. My belief is we need to actually invest a little bit more in regulatory science to give us newer, better tools, including biomarkers and genetic markers, but other kinds of regulatory tools, more investments in innovative clinical trial designs so that we can be as efficient as possible and, and really make sure that in the R&D process we're not wasting time and asking for data that isn't necessary. We also have to look at reimbursement policies. That's a huge driver of willingness, you know this, to invest in certain areas of research and development. And some people would argue we need to look at immigration policies too because if we want the best and the brightest minds working on these issues with us, we need to look at that. So we need a national policy. We need to work on it together, the public and the private sector, and we need to do it now because this is really really important, both for the health of individuals and for the health of our economy. Okay. Thank you. Um, I, I, have to thank, I have to thank our questioner for bringing us onto this wide, high plane, <laughs> which is a wonderful way to end. And if you go to a livelier panel at the Ideas Festival, don't tell me about it. Thank you all for coming. <laughs>